Yeah, I know I got a lot of dog fans in here. I know y'all should be happy. Good morning to all my people at home sitting on your couch. Hey, Tennessee fans, it was a good weekend too, huh? Yes. You finally been delivered out of the desert for 40 years, and you are now prospering. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, we're going to be camping out in verses 1 through 26 this morning. And we're going to be taking a look at a very familiar passage. A few years back, a man by the name of Tom Rainer, who's actually the former president of Lifeway, wrote a book entitled, The Autopsy of a Deceased Church. And the purpose of this book was to select 14 different churches that had previously closed their doors, died, shut down, and for whatever reason, they no longer existed. And what Rainer wanted to do was he wanted to do a deep dive and an analytical look and see if he could find any similarities between why these 14 churches had closed their door. So they polled and asked many questions to the pastors, to the staff, and to the congregants. And here's some of the data that they found out. 80% of those surveyed would say, they said that they felt like they had a personal responsibility to share their faith with the lost. 80%. I'm like, okay, that's pretty good. I hope they would feel like that's their personal responsibility. Well, 60 out of that 80% also admitted that they have not shared their faith with anyone in the previous six months. And Lifeway, to make their point a little bit deeper, they said, you know what? We wanted to find what we would consider a spiritually mature Christian. So they made a list of eight different distinctions or things that are consistently evident in the life of what they would call a mature believer and a mature disciple in Christ. And as, as you can imagine... The first thing on that list is they said a mature believer is somebody that shares the gospel, somebody that actively shares their faith in their everyday life. And would you find it hard to believe that sharing the gospel had the lowest average score among those surveyed? Rainer said, you know what, I'm going to deduce it all the way down, and if I had to pick two things that is evident in each of these 14 churches that are dead, it's two things. One, each of these churches had an inward focus rather than an outward focus on the community that they were called to reach. So what he's saying, he's saying, hey, look, these churches that died, the first culprit of their death is that they were focused on themselves and not the community around them. Now it's okay to focus on yourself. Today we're edifying ourselves. We're growing spiritually. But Jesus didn't put us here in Ringgold, Georgia, just to sit in here, sing Kumbaya and have a good time. No, he put us here so that we can reach our community for Christ. So the first problem was what the churches had an inward focus. The second conclusion that each of the churches had was that he said they were great commission disobedient. That sounds rough. Great commission disobedient. So we know that in Matthew 28, Jesus tells us, he says, hey, church, your mission, and anybody who wears the name of Christ, we all have a great commission. And we are called to go therefore, and you know it, make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching to obey, raising them up in the faith. And what Rainer said is saying, hey, look, for whatever reason, these churches didn't do it. I don't know if they weren't reaching any young people or if they just weren't 
you know, evangelizing, if they weren't inviting people into the doors, but for whatever reason, the main purpose of the church is to reach people, and they weren't doing it, and it led to their demise. Folks, I don't know if you realize today, but as we sit here in this moment, there are over 260 million people in our country today of America that claim to not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. 259, 260 million. And at the time of the study, 316 million people uh, or evangelicals accounted for 22 to 28 million. So about 93% of the population when Lifeway uh, did this research accounted for Christians. And this number has grown, grown up since it's in the 300. So you can just imagine So there are over 300 million people that we come in contact with every day that don't know Jesus. Now, folks, we as a church, sometimes we've got to hit pause and we've got to take a look in the mirror and say, you know what? How much are we really getting right? Are we falling into some of these same things that these churches that are now dead? Are we doing some of the things that they did? Are we focusing too much on the internal and inward on on ourselves? Are we loving and reaching our community? And are we not fulfilling the Great Commission? You know, you ever think about the fact of like, why why do we do what we do? Why are we here today worshiping together? Like, where do we get that? You see, what happened was in Matthew 28, Jesus commissioned the apostles and the disciples. And they started going and sharing and spreading the good news. And then he said, not only are you going to share the good news, but you're going to plant churches. And in the book of Acts, we see the first New Testament church birth. And in Acts chapter 2, we actually see a picture of what the church looks like. Check this out. Read this with me. Acts 2, verse 43 through 44. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which is what we're doing here today, and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer, which we've done several times this morning. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. Next slide. It says they sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need. Funny, just like we talked about this benevolence offering, caring for the needs of believers. Every day, they continued to meet together in temple courts, what we are doing today in the church. It says they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Then it says this. They were praising and singing God, which we just did in worship, enjoying the favor of all the people. And check this out. Don't miss this. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. He said, hey, look, I want you to come in the temple courts. I want you to learn, and I want you to gather together. But don't miss the point of why we're doing it. He says, I want you to add to that number daily. And you know, I started in verse 43. I want to show you actually the verse, verse 42 before that. Look what it says. It says, those who accepted his message that day were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000. So this is the work of the church. We see the Apostle Paul and the apostles, and what they are is they are living the life of missionaries. Now, we know that a missionary is somebody who's called to a specific place with the purpose of taking the gospel. But you see, they were more than that. They were taking over the whole region. And what they were doing is they were doing a term that I want to teach you today. They were what we call living life on 
mission. Say this with me on the count of three. Life on mission. One, two, three. Life on mission. This is a phrase that you will hear a lot in ministry. It's a part of church language. And I I felt like the Lord was calling me to teach on what it means to live life on mission. And so the other day, I began to think, I said, you know what? What does it mean to live life on mission? So I texted a few of my pastor friends, and I said, hey, I want you to give me the simplest, clearest, plainest, two-sentence definition of what you would say it means to live life on mission. And we came up with this. If you're taking notes, this is good, and I'd recommend writing it down. Life on mission. A follower of Jesus who lives every day with spiritual awareness, intentionally looking for opportunities to have gospel-centered conversations with people who don't know Jesus. I'm going to say that again. That's a mouthful. Living life on mission is a follower of Jesus who lives every day with spiritual awareness. Not just going through life nonchalant. No, 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 no. You are spiritually aware of your surroundings. You're not just going through life talking about any and everything. No, you are intentionally looking for opportunities to have gospel-centered conversations. Man, so much of our time we've been talking about just random stuff. I love talking about more football more than every other guy, okay? But folks, there comes a time when we need to focus on the important things of life. We need to intentionally look for opportunities to have gospel-centered conversations about faith, conversations about Jesus. Catch this part with people who don't know Jesus. You see, living life on mission is the story of an every ordinary, everyday ordinary believer leveraging their influence in order to share their faith with the lost. See, when you live life on mission, it means that you live life on purpose. You are contradicting what the world tells us how we're supposed to live. You are no no longer living for your personal mission. You are now signed up living for God's mission. Anybody who claims to be a follower of Jesus is called to be an everyday missionary. I love what the great theologian Charles Spurgeon said. He said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. And folks, I'm here today to tell you that in this current day and age and climate, political, social climate that we live in, now more than ever, the church of Jesus Christ needs to stand up Take our place and live life on mission so that we can reach the world for the gospel. Here at Burning Bush, if you're here long enough, you're gonna hear this. What is our mission as a church? Our mission is to connect people to Jesus and each other. That's why we do this. That's why we we give our tithes and offerings. That's why we gather. That's why we work. That's why we serve, to fulfill the great commission and to connect people to Jesus. But folks, we as a church cannot fulfill our mission Unless we, the church, we, the body, are living life on mission. So today, I just took a long time to set it up because I really want you to understand what we're talking about. Today in John 4, we're going to look at a passage that you're very familiar with. It's the passage of the woman at the well. And we're going to look at Jesus himself, how Jesus is living life on mission. And after we walk through the text, we're going to talk about some practical ways that you can live life on mission in your everyday life. So when we walk through this, I want you to be real intentional about looking into Jesus' life, how he was intentionally living life on mission. Let's start in John chapter 4, verse 3. It says, so he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar 
near the plot and ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from this journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. You see, folks, during this time, this type of thing wasn't supposed to happen because culture um, considered women at a lot lower level than men. As a matter of fact, the woman was a Samaritan, Jesus was a Jew, and the Samaritans were regarded by Jews as despised or half-breeds. Orthodox Jews were actually taught to avoid them in everyday life because there was a long-standing and deep-seated hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. So all that to say, what they were doing was breaking the rules, okay? Jesus wasn't supposed to talk to her. So he asked her this question. He's like, hey, lady, I'm thirsty. Can I have a drink? And look how she responds to him. Verse 10. It says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink... You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So you got to understand, back in Bible times, they didn't have water on tap. They couldn't just walk in the kitchen and get that nasty tap water. I don't know if you like tap water. It's got a little funny taste, but they didn't have that. So they had to make an everyday habit to go to the well. So this woman was in her everyday life getting water at the well, and Jesus was thirsty, and all he was doing was getting a drink. Now, while Jesus is going to the well, what does he do? We see Jesus being spiritually aware of his surroundings, always looking for opportunities for evangelism. And many times in this gospel, we see Jesus using double language. Yes, Jesus is referring and talking to a pitcher, uh, talking about a pitcher of water. He's talking about something that's physical that we can see. But you see, he's not talking about the same type of water she's talking about. He's talking about spiritual water. Look what she says to him in verse 11. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw the water with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? She's curious. Are you greater, she shifts gears, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as also did his sons and his livestock? You see, folks, it's believed that Jacob drank from this well. And we, for those of you that remember in the summer when we, Billy and I walked through the life of Abraham, we talked about the lineage of Jesus. And Jacob was a part of Jesus' lineage that ultimately led to the Messiah. But little did she know the man she was talking to, yes, he was greater than Jacob. Look what he says in verse 13. It says, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks the water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Boom. Here it is. Jesus is about to make his move. He's like, lady, look, I know you're talking about physical water, but what I'm talking about water on a whole nother level. He's like, you know what? You can drink this water of whatever kind you want. You can drink the water of success, 
You can seek the water of fame and money and fortune. You can try and find your identity and all the cool things that you think are, are, are going to make you successful in life. You can find them in your career, find your identity in your marriage, in your children, all these things. But he says, this water that you are seeking, it will leave you thirsty. Folks, we have too many people in our world and Christians in our church trying to drink the wrong type of water. They're so concerned about what other people think of them that the things that they're pursuing aren't what's best for them. You know what's happening? We're pouring all the wrong things into our cup. But Jesus says, hey, look, lady, I've got good news for you. Okay, I don't just want to focus on the negative. No, I want to focus on the positive. He said, the water that I can give you, it's a different type of water. It is living water. Water that will cleanse your soul Water that will forgive your heart. Water that will make you do things you never thought capable. And here's the thing. This water that I can offer, it will make you never thirst again. And this is what he was offering to the lady at this day. The verse pops in my head. What profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his own soul? And friend, maybe you're here today and you're chasing all the wrong things in your life. And I want to challenge you and plead with you. Man, don't chase the fleeting things of the world, but fill your cup with everlasting water and eternal life that Jesus offers to you today. Look what the woman says to him in verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back to draw water. So obviously her immediate response is, okay, living water, sign me up, I'm in. But see, she wasn't quite there yet. It wasn't all quite clicking for you. But Jesus, he was patient. He was calm. And he walked her step by step. You see, the seed, uh, the seed of the word of the gospel had fallen, but it was still falling on shallow soil. And the roots of the gospel were trying to plant, but they weren't quite ready. So Jesus, being patient, he said, I'm just going to cut through and we're going to get to the point. Look what he says to her in verse 16. He says, go, call your husbands and come back. I have no husband, she said. Jesus told her, you're right. You say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite True. So you see, she, she's wanting the water, but she wasn't quite ready to receive it yet. She knew all the benefits of the water offered, but she didn't fully grasp it. Like she had to change the way she lived in order to follow Jesus. So what does Jesus do? He's leading her to confront her sin. Because you see, folks, there can be no conversion without faith and repentance. Jesus isn't offering us salvation just so we can keep sinning in our lives. No, he's calling us to true faith. And true faith is faith in God. And when you have true and everlasting faith in Jesus, you will repent and turn from your sins. They go hand in hand. They are two sides of the same coin. Scripture says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In that moment, when you place your faith in Jesus, you can no longer live the same way you used to live. So this woman, she's under conviction. He asks her about her many, many husbands. And what does she do? She derails the conversation. Look at verse 19. 
Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So here's what she's trying to do. She's trying to change the conversation, okay? They're talking about her, her, her sin, and she's trying to shift it. She shifts gears to one of the most debated topics between Samaritans and Jews, which is the place of worship. But Jesus, he doesn't take the bait. He's like, look, I'm not worried about all those details. I'm just going to cut through. So he quickly gives her an answer. Verse 21, he says, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We, we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. So what he's saying to her, he's saying, hey, look, you're sitting here worrying about the place of worship, whether you're supposed to worship in the building or on the mountain. But here pretty soon, when I'm done living my life and my ministry, I'm going to die. And the crucifixion is going to happen. He says the time for worship is now, and the, the place of worship will be irrelevant. Worship will no longer be limited to a temple or to a building. Worship will take place into the life of the believers. And you see, the Samaritans, they only were raised on half of the Pentateuch. Okay, they didn't have the New Testament. They just had the Old Testament. So she had only gotten half of the Old Testament teaching. So Jesus had to fill in the gaps for her. But he tells her, he says, this salvation you're speaking of, it comes from the Jews. Look at verse 23. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. So he's saying, hey, lady, the time for worship is now. The cross and the crucifixion, they are coming. The spirit of truth is here. Without saying it, he's saying that I am him. People are worshiping me, and at this time, people were following Jesus. God says it's not about where you worship. It's going to become about who you worship. God doesn't work through buildings. God works through people. Look what she says to him in verse 25. It says, the woman said, and this is important, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. So she's like, hey, in my limited Pentateuch teaching, the prophets, they talked about this. There's a Messiah coming. He's going to come and offer salvation and offer forgiveness. And hopefully soon when he comes, he will explain everything to us. So here we see her making progress. It's like, okay, we're getting somewhere now. You're talking about the Messiah. And what does Jesus do? He sticks with her, life on mission. He's walking her through the steps. Then Jesus flips it upside down. Look at verse 26. It says, then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Folks, this is a big deal. John chapter 4, we're early in the gospel. This is one of the first times that Jesus reveals himself to the public and to the masses. Hey, this Messiah you've been learning and hearing about, I am he. It's me, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. I have come to seek and save that which was lost. I don't have enough time to read all the text to you, but what happens next is pretty cool. It says the woman is so excited about what she had just heard. The disciples, they come back from the, from the town, right, when Jesus tells her, hey, I am he. You know what the woman does? She gets so excited 
She leaves her pitcher at the well. She runs off. She goes and finds her family and her friends because she could not contain the news that she had heard. Look at verse 29. It says, come. This is her speaking to her people in her village. Come, see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Messiah? The scripture says they came out of the town and they made their way toward Jesus. And if you skip down about 10 verses later to verse 39, it said many believed because of the testimony of the woman. Folks, in a split second, Jesus could overcome racial barriers. Jesus could forgive sin that was very despised and looked down upon. In a split second, Jesus could give life to a lost sinner. So why did Jesus do this? Could could he not have just got water and went on? Jesus did this because he was intentionally living life on mission. I don't know where you're at today, but maybe somebody in the room or online, you can identify. You're like, you know what, Joseph, if I'm being honest, I am the Samaritan woman. I've been drinking all the wrong stuff. I've been chasing and pursuing all the wrong things. And friend, if that's you today, I challenge you. Jesus is offering you living water, water that will Never make you thirst again, but water that will satisfy your soul. For many of you in here today, you have Samaritan women in your life, people who, for being honest, they just don't know Jesus, and you are the only Jesus they will ever see. So as we wrap up today, I want to give you six quick tips on how you can be a Christian that lives life on mission to reach those that you love. The first one is this, to live life on mission. You must be walking in the spirit daily. Friends, have you ever heard the saying, you can't take somebody to a place you've never been? In order to reach those that you love for the gospel, you have to be walking with Jesus daily. Not just on Sundays, not just on Wednesdays, but every day. You've got to be saying, God, would you transform my mind with your word so I can know you more, God, so I can share your word with others. God, may I submit my life to you in prayer daily so that you can lead my steps as I'm encountering unbelievers daily. God, would you lead me? Would you guide me? And friends, you cannot live life on mission if you're not walking with Jesus every day. The second point, to live life on mission, you must intentionally look for opportunities to have gospel-centered conversations with people who don't know Jesus. Some of you, you're like, you know what, Joseph, if I'm being honest, I hate to say this, but I just, I'm not around a lot of people who aren't Christians. I'm just not around a lot of lost people. I just am around Christians all the time. Friend, if that's you, I hate to tell you, but that's a problem. If we're not careful, we can easily get secluded in our Christian bubble in the lost and hurting community around us. Just like that dying church, we can forget that they're there because it's easy. It's, it's easy just to focus inward. And Jesus is saying, no, if you want to reach the people that, that I'm calling you to reach, you've got to look and be intentional, looking for opportunities to have gospel-centered conversations. I'm talking more than just inviting somebody to church. Like, that's a great That's a great starting place. But inviting somebody to church is not sharing the gospel with them. No, 
it's not my duty or Dennis's or Billy's opportunity to, our, uh, duty to sit up here and preach so that you can bring people and then they can hear the gospel from us. No, it's your job. It's your duty. We are the church. You are the gospel carriers. When you live life on mission, you are taking the gospel to them. Who are these people we're talking about? Who are this over 200 million? Who are they? This is your neighbor across the street who you've lived there for 20 years, but you've never dared to ask him about his eternal salvation. This is your brother who you haven't talked to in 10 years because y'all, y'all had a falling out, and, and if you're being honest, he, he probably doesn't know Jesus. This is your son or your daughter who once they went to college and you weren't, they weren't living under your thumb anymore, they drifted away from church. This is your husband or your wife sitting right beside you this morning, and you've been praying year after year after year God, would you save their soul? These are the people that we know and that we love. These aren't just one-stop encounters. Yes, it can happen this way. No, these are the people that we do life with every day. We're building influence with these people. But we gotta leverage that influence so that we can have intentional, gospel-centered conversations with those who don't know Jesus. How do we do this? How do we start doing this? We do this by serving by loving. Because see, when you serve somebody, it brings merit to your message. It paves the way so that when God gives you an opportunity to speak the gospel to them, they are ready to hear it. Third point, to live life on mission, you must be spiritually aware of your surroundings and seize opportunities when they are presented. Folks, I don't know if you realize, but you are not here on purpose today. You might just think, ah, I'm just a nobody. I'm just a teacher. I'm just a plumber. I'm just a banker. My job, I'm just just there just because, just so it gets me money. It really doesn't have any value. No, man, don't miss it. See, when you're walking with the Lord daily, you will be spiritually aware, meaning you will be in tune to the ways of God. God says, I don't have you there just for no reason. No, I have planted you there specifically so that you can be a light on a dark, dark hill. You are the only Jesus that some of those people will ever see. God says, I have placed you and planted you there for a reason. Fourth point, to live life on mission, you must be bold and trust that God will do his part. Some of you say, Joseph, I I hear you, but that's a tough ask. Like, I'm not the smartest. I don't have all the Bible knowledge. Like, I really don't know how to explain the Trinity and the Godhead. It just confuses me. Like, Like, what do I do? And friend, I'm here today to tell you that you don't have to give all the answers. Your vessel, all God wants you to do is to be a mouthpiece. He will work through you. You don't have to give all the right answers. You've just got to be there at the water fountain when your buddy bumps into you and you're like, hey man, how's your day going? And he's like, bad man, my wife just filed me divorce papers. You've just got to be in the room when your neighbor finds out that his wife has cancer. You don't even have to say anything. You just got to give a shoulder to lean on. You just got to be the person to say, hey, man, I'm going to help pick you up. This Jesus that I follow, man, he offers something greater. He offers something that can satisfy your soul right now. It's living water. Folks, we've got to be bold. We've got to be vessels and mouthpieces and allow God to work through us. Fifth point, and most important, some of you say, 
where do I start? See, folks, to live on life on mission, you must share what has been poured into you. See, so many of us, we live our lives as Christians, coming to church every week, having plenty of Bible studies and sermons, so much so that our cup becomes full. We have everything we need. You know what happens? It overflows. And all this stuff that God has given us, we're wasting it. We're not putting it to good use. Jesus said, I didn't just fill your cup so that you could have a lot of water. He said, no, I have placed people in your life whose vessels are empty. And it is your duty to pour back into them. Joseph, where do I start? Start in your home. Reach your kids for Christ. Start in your home. Reach your wife for Christ. Start with your neighbor, your coworker, the people that you love, who you say you love, but you haven't ever shared your faith with them. Jesus has given us living water, not just so that we could drink it, but so that we can offer it to others. We've got to start at our home. We've got to start with the people that God has placed in our life. Missional living is an everyday decision. These are the people that we talk to, that we spend Christmas with, that we invite to our children's baptisms, that we, that we go to the mall with. These are people that we love. You may say, Joseph, that's tough because the person you're talking about for me is my brother, but we haven't spoken in 10 years. He wronged me. He betrayed me, and I don't know if I can ever get over it. But Joseph, you don't understand. My father, he wasn't around. And now that I'm an adult, he expects us to come back into my life and I'm just supposed to forgive him? Friends, you might be the only Jesus that he ever sees. God has placed people in our life that need to hear the good news. And we have the answer. The sixth and final point this morning is to live life on mission. You must pray that God would break your heart for the lost. Maybe somebody in the room today, you're like, man, I, it's clear. I, I need to get saved today. I need to place my faith in Jesus like the Samaritan woman. Friend, if that's you here in a minute, we're gonna have a time of prayer and you can do that. I'd love to talk with you about it. Maybe somebody in the room that brought you would like to share with you how to become a Christian. But for many of you in here today, we're gonna have a little bit of a different time of commitment. Liana, you can come up. We're going to have a focused, concentrated time of prayer. Because, folks, desperate times call for desperate measures. And this morning, here in a minute, we're just going to take a few minutes. And we are going to pray for the loved ones in our life that God has placed on your mind right now that don't know Jesus.